0: I love the worship in this church and I love to come to worship not to be entertained but to worship and uh, because the words of the songs are true and as Roger Breland says a great song is always a great song doesn't matter when it was written a great song is always a great song. And. as I was sitting there, quite honestly, I, I got to thinking about another song, my friend Jerry Pereira, who went to be with the Lord a number of years ago, died at 52 of cancer and he was a pastor in uh, North Carolina, and as he was uh, dying of cancer, he was married to T.W. Wilson's daughter, who was uh, Billy Graham's right-hand man, and uh, had preached T.W.'s funeral, And as he was dying, Bev Shea came to the hospital to see him about 48 hours before he died. And he leaned over in the bed and he said, Jerry, this one's for you. And he sang, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. You know, whether you're a child in the preschool getting your diaper changed or you're a man just hours away from eternity, it's good to know that Jesus loves you. And in fact, that's the only thing you really need to know when you get to that point in life. Next Sunday night, uh, Truth will be here. Uh, Some of you have never heard them, or it's been a long time. It's been a long time since I've heard them. Uh, I remember my first exposure to uh, Truth. I was a new believer, saved in the Jesus movement, walked out of uh, my classroom at Mississippi Gulf Coast Junior College, And there was a U-Haul truck and three white Dodge station wagons with wood panel siding on the side of them and a group of students my age standing in front of that wood panel truck with microphones singing songs I had never heard before. And they had already attracted quite a crowd because in the South, in Mississippi, you didn't know anything about contemporary Christian music because it takes it a while for us to get sunlight in South Mississippi, and so just to, you know, to get anything like that was, was kind of new to us, and, and I sat on that bank and listened to them, and then over the course of that first year, they came to my home church six times, and, and I don't know uh, in the early days of my ministry and my walk with God, uh, outside of my youth minister in Vance Havner, I don't know if anybody influenced me more uh... than roger breland in truth did uh... i'm an unashamed groupie um, i heard him fifty two times the first year i was the mail guy I'd drive the mobile pick up the mail and take it to them there was no email there were no cell phones that they heard from home or heard from anybody they had to get mail from the office and so i did that i even offered to quit college and drive the bus uh, but uh, roger knew better and uh... I tell you, you know, I mentioned last week that we would not have the music of Andre Crouch in the church as we know it today if it hadn't been for Roger Breland because Andre Crouch was really limited to the West Coast in his influence and in his music. It had not really gotten even into states like Texas and big cities, but Roger was really a key in bringing that music into the church. Started with a guy named Mark Hardy singing I Don't Know Why Jesus Loved Me. And uh, then the music of Bill Gaither a couple of years later uh, when Bill Gaither was writing music that nobody wanted to hear in the church because it was contemporary and it was too modern. <laughs> now we would laugh at that statement, but uh, nobody knew who Bill Gaither was outside the churches up in the Northwest and in Indiana. And Truth recorded three albums of Gaither music and brought the Gaither music into the church. And by the way, the reason that you see and, and any minister of music would tell you this. The reason that you see praise teams and the reason that you see horns and the reason that you see bands in churches today is because Roger Breland, as a 27 year old minister of music, walked away from a good paying job and by faith took a group of college kids on the road to take a new style of music to the church and the church has been blessed by it And Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people have been saved in those concerts. So we get to hear them again next week. You'll recognize a lot of the singers. Many of them have been with Voices of Mobile for the last three or four years. And some of them were just with us just last, just earlier this month, uh, singing with Voices of Mobile. And so some of them are in the band. The only uh, member of the band that you will recognize from years past is Rick Ball, the drummer. And uh, he is, uh, he's on the road with them for, I think, this will be probably the 10th year, but he wasn't going to miss it. Uh, but uh, we're excited about them being here and, and being with us and, and sharing uh, one more time. They're actually going to do a Christmas concert here as well, and then uh, this will wrap it up and put a bow on the, uh, on the Ministry of Truth. I'd ask you to pray for Roger. Uh, he went home yesterday. Uh, dealing with some pretty serious spikes in his blood pressure. So there's a lot of stuff going on this week, and I know they would appreciate you praying for them. All right. Living with eternity in mind, 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're starting a new series in uh, the book of 2 Timothy. It'll be about somewhere between four and six messages, and We'll cover this book pretty quickly, but we will hit the subject hard about being a soldier of the cross and being a soldier for Christ. When you open your Bible to 2 Timothy, you are literally walking inside an underground dungeon filled with rats and mildew and water and waste dripping from the road above. And you're meeting a man who's writing the last thing that he will ever write. Although he's written 13 letters, this will be the last letter that he composes and writes. And he writes it to a young protege, a young man who has been called into the ministry and is under his ministry. And he has been influencing him and mentoring him and encouraging him. And Here's a man that's facing death who has been a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ. He has not stumbled in his walk. He has maintained his integrity. He's maintained his commitment to the gospel at a time when it would have been very easy for him with the growing persecution and being beaten and left for dead and run out of every town that he ever went to. It would have been very easy for Paul to say, you know, this is just too much. You know, I've done my duty for God and for country. I'm going to get me a nice little house on the Riviera, and I'm going to retire and just read Christian fiction. It had been real easy for him to do. But that's not what this old warrior did. This man, beaten in the battles of life, buffeted by Satan, still writes with a strong hand and a strong word. He knows that his voice is soon going to be silenced. Death is knocking at his door. Martyrdom is what awaits him. And writing from death row, he writes important words. What a man does when he is facing his last days tells you what his priorities are. And Paul did not write a letter to Timothy saying, Poor, poor, pitiful me, feel sorry for me. Paul wrote a letter to Timothy and saying, I expect you to keep up what I started in you. I expect you to continue on these paths that I've laid before you. So this is a last days epistle, as in the last days of this old prophet. Persecution is rising. Uh, Nero has probably burned Rome at this time. He's trying to lay the blame on the Christians. And he writes to Timothy, and in. It's most likely we we have a hard time putting ourselves in, in this environment because we are so instant in our communication, but even a simple letter from Rome to Ephesus would have taken weeks to get there, would not have been quickly delivered. The time between the first letter to Timothy and the second letter would have been long enough that it is possible that Timothy wondered if Paul was even still alive if he was even going to ever write or if he's going to ever hear from him again and in the first letter and i'm going to in this introduction i'm going to kind of take you from first timothy to second timothy in the first letter paul says to timothy you stay in ephesus in the second letter he says leave and come to rome now imagine timothy getting that letter he may have been a young man in his 20s And imagine him getting that letter. He's been told to stay and fight the battle and stand for the word and and be unapologetic in his faith and not be fearful and and timid. And now he's told to leave and come to Rome. Well, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is Paul's still alive. I get to have one more conversation with him. The bad news is if I go to Rome, they may arrest me and they may kill me when they kill Paul. So it couldn't have been with great excitement that Timothy said, oh, yippee, I get to go to Rome. Wait a minute. Paul's chained to Roman guards 24-7, and they may be after anybody that's like Paul or with Paul or identifies with Paul, and I could be in trouble if I show up here, and he may have had a little fear, may have cropped up in him again. But this is a letter of a man passing the torch like Moses to Joshua, like Elijah to Elisha, Paul is passing the torch to the next generation. And I think it is important for us to see this not only as a letter from an old warrior for the gospel in Paul to a young preacher in ministry, I think it's also important for us to see us as one generation talking to the next generation, as grandparents talking to grandchildren, as parents talking to their students, as students talking to their younger siblings, how we are supposed to live our lives in light of the days in which we live. If persecution is going to come, and if it's going to grow in our culture, in our world, in our nation, then what kind of people should we be? Paul had written at previous times his desire to continue to travel and to preach and to plant churches. But now he comes to this letter and he says, the time of my departure is at hand. So it's a dying letter. What a man thinks about when he's approaching death is different than what he thinks about when he's never thinking about it. When he thinks he's got all the time in the world, and most of us live as, as if we have all the time in the world, when the reality is we are we are dying men on our way to the land of the living. That's where we're headed. And, and so Paul writes this letter, you see in your notes, that his letters can be broken down into four categories, the profound doctrinal letters, the letters of promise of the second coming, the perfection letters, how to live in Christ, and then these Pastoral letters, 1st, 2nd, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. So the first thing is, boot camp isn't for wimps. How many of you have been through boot camp? Is it for wimps? Boot camp, you know, they're real nice while your mama's standing there, kissing you goodbye. When you leave, that sergeant would just as soon jump down your throat and tap dance on your lungs as treat you nicely. He could care less how you feel, what's going on in your life, your problems, your issues. Am I right? Those of you that have been, he could care less. He's got one job to drill you to become a soldier so that when the battles come, you don't desert, you don't go AWOL, and you don't abandon your comrades in the battle. You stand and fight to the death if necessary. And so let's back up for a minute and put Second Timothy in context. In First Timothy chapter 1, he deals with doctrine. Now, typically, that's the way Paul writes a letter. He always starts with doctrine, and he deals with application. That's why you never read one of Paul's letters and just deal with the application, because you may not understand the doctrine and the teaching behind that application. So he begins with doctrine. Secondly, in chapter 2, he deals with worship. And then in chapter 4, he warns the church Now, here's an interesting contrast between 1 and 2 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, he calls Timothy the man of God, but he tells him how to act in the church and how to serve the purposes of God in the church. In 2 Timothy, he calls him a man of God, but he tells him how to live his life in the world. So 1 Timothy is what the church needs to be like. 2 Timothy is how the church needs to act in a dying world. The stand that we need to take. When we are called out of the barracks and into battle. Out of our safety net on the base and on the front lines. And so how we live in this world that is opposing and rejecting Christ is key because Paul starts talking about how some people are going to respond when they're faced with a battle. You see, persecution reveals the real church. The battles and the strife of life reveals where a person's faith really is. And so there's several things. He says, first of all, in 1 Timothy 4, unfortunately, some people will depart from the faith. They're just going to depart from the faith. They're just going to walk away and not come back. Secondly, some will deny the faith. That's 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8. Some will deny the faith. Some will set aside their faith. faith 1 Timothy 5 12. Some will be seduced from the faith. 1, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. Some will go astray in their faith. That's chapter 6 and verse 21. Some will confuse people regarding the faith. Now he's in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 18. And some will corrupt the faith, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8. So it is in this environment that Paul is now felt led to write Timothy a letter, not not a farewell letter like we would think a farewell letter would be written, but to say, Timothy, you need to understand, you're going to be surrounded by people that are going to depart, deny, set aside, be seduced from, go astray from, confuse people about, and corrupt the faith. You need to know what to do in that kind of environment. Now, does this matter to us? I mean, in the, in the 70s and 80s, Southern Baptists fought a battle over inerrancy. Was the Word of God the inerrant, infallible Word of God? My answer to that is yes. Uh, Our Constitution and bylaws says if anybody from pastor to staff member to deacon ever doesn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that they are removed immediately from a leadership position. Just clear and simple. Why? To protect the church from those that would deny the Word of God. And there are whole groups of people that say, well, I believe the Word of God. Just not this part, just not that part, just not this part. We're kind of like Thomas Jefferson. We kind of write the Bible that we're comfortable with. You know, Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that bother me. So let me just read you some quotes from some preachers and see if we're in a battle. One preacher said this, Those who have led a good life on earth but found themselves unable to believe in God will not be debarred from heaven. I expect to meet many present-day atheists in heaven." You know what? The guy kept his job. Another preacher. The Adam and Eve story must be regarded as a parable because it contradicts geology. Third one. We are Christian atheists. We say there was a God, but there isn't now. It is a breathtaking way of doing Christianity without God. Jesus was wrong about a lot of things, but he's still a pretty good person. Now, can I tell you something? Those statements were made inside of mainline and evangelical churches. This is why it is important for us to understand for ourselves, first of all, and then for our children and for their children, for our young people, for our kids that are in the nursery right now that don't even know what a Bible is, it is important for us to say, that's not of God. What God says is true. Let every other man be a liar. So... Vance Havner said, there's a sneaking infiltration of false doctrine and a gradual inflow of worldliness into the church. Satan does far more evil as an angel of light than he wrought as a roaring lion. As matters are made worse because it is considered unloving, unchristian to attack wolves in sheep's clothing. Alex mentioned to you earlier about a conference where, and it is a major, major, one of the biggest Christian leadership conferences in America. Thousands upon thousands of young ministers go to this conference, and they have invited a Marxist, a known Marxist, to speak on social injustice. Now, can I tell you something? I don't need a Marxist from a a mindset where they killed 60 million of their own people between World War I and the end of the Cold War, telling me what social injustice is. I can read my Bible and find out what to do about social injustice. At the youth camp that he mentioned, there were 3,500 young people. Names that you would know were on that program that did not leave and did not walk out, nor rebuke or correct the movie that was shown, clips from the movie that were shown, that included many, many, many profanities and things that I would not mention in a mixed audience portrayed as a Christian movie coming to your church and to your local theater this spring. And people that know better sat there and did nothing. A pastor who was there sent me a message immediately after seeing it and he said, It's the most offensive thing I've ever seen, and I felt like I was drinking poison. He said, and the sad thing was there were 3,500 young people there drinking the Kool-Aid, and they didn't even know it, nor did their youth ministers know it. Folks, we're in a battle, even for what the church really is supposed to be. And so we've got to get serious about what God says about being soldiers. This is no time for us to be wimps. This is no time for us to be passive. This is no time for us to be a conscientious objector. We're in a war. And it's a war for the identity of what the church is and what the church is supposed to be. In 1 Timothy, we are charged to guard the gospel. In 2 Timothy, we are charged. Challenged to be faithful to the gospel. In Titus, we are called to put all things in order. Now here's the interesting transition between 1st and 2 Timothy. In, In 1 Timothy, Paul says, some have gone astray. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, all. In just a matter of a few years, Paul goes from using the word some to all. Now, let me just give you the references. Second Timothy chapter one, verse 15, all who are in Asia turned away from me. In other words, they didn't want to be identified with this radical old preacher that was calling people to the word of God and to the Lordship of Christ. That wasn't the thing to do in the moment. So he says, they all, everybody in Asia just turned away from me. Now imagine that the gospel wouldn't have even gone to Asia if it hadn't been for Paul. And now, because of persecution and being uncomfortable with this old man that just keeps hammering the word of God on people, they turn away from him. In 2 Timothy 4.16, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. Now, I want you to look at 2 Timothy, and let's just walk through chapter 1, and I want you to see a pivotal phrase that needs to define us. The phrase is this, not ashamed, not ashamed. Let's just look at it, and you may want to take time to mark it in your Bibles. Chapter 1 and verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. People have become ashamed of Paul. You know why? Why? Well, you know, there were these new teachings coming out. The Gnostics were there. The Judaizers were there. And, you know, it seemed like some of what they were saying was good. And it had some truth in it. And Paul is fighting these people that are fighting the purity of the gospel. And Paul says, don't be ashamed of me. You need to remember where you come from. In verse uh, 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Paul said, it's going to cost me my life, but I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to deny him. I'm not going to forsake him. I'm not going to back up. I'm not going to shut up. I'm not going to be quiet. I'm not going to be pushed backwards. Nobody's going to change my mind about Jesus. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. Verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesos for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my change. Here's a guy who risked his life to go to the prison to visit Paul. Now I've been inside what tradition says is that prison where Paul was and it's dark and nasty. It's not the place where you go that's air conditioned and has a cot. I mean, it's just stone carved out of the ground and dropped through a hole and left there. It's under one of the streets in Rome today. And this man came to visit him. Chapter 2 and verse 15. Chapter 2 and verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. And how are we not ashamed? By accurately handling the word of truth. I I heard a Christian comedian say a long time ago, say, you know, people say those of us that believe the Bible are arrogant. He says, you can be arrogant when you're right. I mean, if we have in our hands the word of truth, then why should we be ashamed of it? Why should we apologize for it? I mean, in the end, God's going to say, told you so. (laughs) Gave you 66 books. Had a chance every day to look at it. Find a Bible in your hotel room. I mean, I gave you a chance. This is the word of truth. This tells you the way to God. And so Paul is writing this letter about not being ashamed. Can I tell you something? Don't ever be ashamed of Christ. Don't be ashamed of being a member of this church. Don't be ashamed of calling yourself a Christian or of the word of God. Here's what I know. Sin makes us cowards and the spirit makes us a soldier. Sin makes us a coward and the spirit makes us a soldier. That's why every day when we get up we ought to put on the armor of Ephesians 6 and get dressed because we are in a battle. Now you see in your notes in chapter 1 Paul says be bold that's Paul the apostle speaking in chapter 2 he says be strong that's Paul the soldier In chapter 3, be wise, that's Paul the prophet. And in chapter 4, be diligent, that's Paul the martyr. Now, right by that, you could say Paul's a master at all this because in chapter 1, he says, do not be ashamed. In chapter 2, he says, be strong, therefore be strong. In chapter 3, he tells us what the world is going to be like that we are going to live in, and it is true even to this day. And then he tells us in chapter 4 how to respond. Paul was familiar with, with the manual. This is your combat training manual. You read this, you know how to assemble and use your weapon at any time. You're always prepared to use it. You know your defensive strategies, you know how to stand, you know when to run, but there's nothing in this manual that ever tells you to quit or retreat it's not in there. What this manual tells you to do, this manual tells you how to take ground, how to storm the gates of hell, how to be an overcomer, how to live an abundant life, and how to walk in victory. That's what you read when you read this manual. And so this is a good training manual for us. And Paul is writing a training manual to this young protege, this young preacher, about how to face every situation of life. Now, Look at chapter 2 and verse 18, because Paul is throwing in through this book these people that are going to walk away from the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 18, men who have gone astray from the truth. I'm just going back to reinforce what we just looked at. Chapter 3 and verse 8, men who oppose the truth. In chapter 4 and verse 4, They will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Telford says it this way, The Word of God is not only to be revered and reverenced, it must be recognized as paramount in all spiritual work and warfare. As a man or woman treats the Bible, so they treat God. Turn your back upon the Bible, and you have turned your back upon God. If you want to get rid of God, get rid of the Bible. This is his story. This is his book. It's his plan for how to redeem man and for redeem men how they are to live as long as God gives them breath. And so the second thing is the soldier's pledge of his full allegiance. You know, a good soldier will inspire other soldiers. Uh, I've been privileged to sit in on two retirement ceremonies of marines in our church in the last few months and what they say when they retire to their peers that sit in the room I don't know if it inspired their peers but it inspired me it inspired me that when finally one day they fold a flag that I want them to fold it and say well done soldier you did what you were supposed to do. You fought the right battles at the right time. You stood for the right reasons for the right cause. And you didn't back up and you didn't compromise. Ron Dunn told me one day walking in our, my old office, we were talking about a fellow friend that had fallen in the ministry. And Ron was shuffling in. Back in the 90s, back to my old office where John Spencer's office is now. and He kind of grabbed me by my lapel and Kay and Terry were walking behind and he just grabbed me by my lapel and kind of turned me this way. And he said, Michael, if you ever get off the path, I'm going to kill you. You know, Vance Havner said kind of the same thing to me. Because you see, when you enlist in God's army, you never retire. That's right. You're in it for the duration. And so Paul is writing, and let's pick up in chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus to Timothy my beloved Son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. By the way, Paul in that verse ties in the fact that the way we endure suffering is by the power of God. If you want to know how we withstand in times of suffering, it's through the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which is granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now just think about that. Here's a guy that knows he's about to get his head cut off. He's about to die. And one of the first things he says to Timothy is, "God's abolished death." Can you imagine Timothy reading that? Well, wait a minute, you're about to die. Yeah. But God's given me eternal life. And kill me once. You can't kill me twice. You can take my life on this earth, but God's given me a life that lasts beyond this earth. And so he he talks about this power of the gospel. Now, just think through this in a minute, and we're we're rapidly moving toward uh, the end, but just think about this for a minute. The name Paul. The Judaizers hated that name. The Gnostics hated that name. The legalists hated that name. But all across the Roman Empire, There were people that had come to faith in Jesus Christ because Paul did the hard thing. He walked in. Every place he walked, he went to the Jewish synagogue. Sometimes it didn't take him a week to get kicked out. And he'd just go out and start a church. He went to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. But he always went in and tried to talk to God's people that he had met the Messiah. And when they kicked him out, he went and shared the gospel with the Gentiles. Some Jews were saved, some Gentiles were saved, but everywhere Paul went, he left a church. He didn't leave a a community gathering, he left a church. A people set apart by God. Paul went to establish Churches, And he left people in charge of those churches. And he had left Timothy in charge in, a, in Ephesus. And so Paul, who wrote to the church, and one thing Paul never said is, quit, give up, retreat. It's not worth it. He always called the church to a higher standard. Now, Paul didn't make Timothy an apostle. Because the qualification to be an apostle is you had to have seen the risen Lord. And so anytime you see somebody in America or anywhere else calling themselves an apostle, that's a name they've given themselves because I don't know any of them that have seen the risen Lord. And if they had, some of them wouldn't be preaching the stuff they're preaching. And calling themselves an apostle. An apostle, the qualification biblically is clear. You had to have seen the risen Lord. That applied to the 11 disciples minus Judas and to Paul. Paul says, he appeared to me also. Paul was, Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And so Paul qualified as an apostle. But not Timothy, not Titus, not any other person, not Luke. None of those were apostles because they had not seen the risen Lord. And so he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, he, here's the thing. Some of us are called vocationally to minister, but all of us are called spiritually to be soldiers of Christ. Uh, This split between clergy and laity and professional and, and volunteer is not a biblical split. We're all called to be soldiers of Christ, called by the will of God according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. And so for Paul, the gospel was not Starting hospitals, which that is good. Feeding the poor, which that is good. Taking care of orphans, which that is good. None of that is wrong. In fact, that's included in the gospel. But the primary focus of the gospel is to see people come to Christ. Because you see, you can clothe and feed a person, and there's just going to be a better clothed and a better fed lost person Heading to hell if you don't tell them about Jesus. Right. Welfare can make people have more to eat and more clothes and a roof over their head, but it can't get them to heaven. That's right. The only thing that gets anybody to heaven is the gospel. And so Paul says, I'm all of this according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Gary Dimmer says to call Jesus Lord is to give him absolute authority in one's life. Three times Paul uses Christ Jesus in this introduction. In other words, Paul is saying it's not about theology, it's not about religion, it's not about methods and forms and preferences, it's about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, those of you that have been in the military, help me out here. Okay? If I'm a private and a captain or a major, you can just say a sergeant, If anybody above my rank walks by me, what am I supposed to do? Salute? I mean, have you ever seen a private walk by a general and go, hey, dude, what's happening? (laughs) That'd go over real well. Hey, dude, how does it feel to hang by your thumbs? (laughs) I'll call you when I get back. (laughs) No, you see, somebody in the military is under somebody else's authority. And even the highest-ranking general is under the authority of the commander-in-chief. And so there's always a chain of command, there's always an authority, and if you violate that authority, there are consequences to that. You can be dishonorably discharged, you can be court-martial, you can be kicked out. I mean, there are a lot of things that can happen. Most of them are not good. Would those of you that have been in the military agree? Most of them are not good. If you disobey orders, I mean, you do what you're told to do, and sometimes you don't even get a right to question unless you ask permission to speak. Now, here's the correlation. As soldiers of Jesus Christ, God in heaven is the commander-in-chief of the army of hosts. Jesus is the general in charge of the army. And the Holy Spirit is the power that equips us to be victorious when we go into battle. We have no right to be AWOL. We have no right to think that we can act any way we want to. Because when we're under authority, under His authority, we march at His command, not at our convenience. Does that make sense? I mean, we don't work on our schedule. We work on his schedule. We march at his command. We obey his orders. We don't make up the orders. We don't make up the rules. He does. Now, when the Vietnam War hit, I had friends that went to Vietnam and died. Um, because of my eyesight and my flat-footedness, I was 4F. If I'd have known about that machine of Captain America's, I'd have gotten in that sucker and I could have done something. I'd get gotten me one of those shields. But I was 4F. I couldn't pass. I still got a draft number. That year uh, they had the draft and you'd get numbered and I was number 125 and they stopped at a number 118 that year. I lost some good friends in Vietnam. Some of them went unwillingly. Some of them volunteered some of them never came back i remember standing in my dad's drugstore working and i was a freshman in college at the time and i was working in my dad's drugstore and i remember a mom and dad coming in to get some prescriptions filled who had just gotten word that their son-in-law who was 72 hours away from coming home had stepped on a landmine and had been killed i never forget the tone in their voice The look in their face, and the agony that they lived with for the rest of their lives. But he stepped on a landmine because he was obeying orders to take a hill. It cost him his life. He could have not obeyed orders. You see, I don't know what following Jesus is going to cost us in this world. I don't know what it's going to cost me. I don't know what it's going to cost you. But I would rather die taking a hill than face my Lord as a deserter and say it just wasn't worth it to follow Jesus. One of the things that's most impressed me about being in Israel, and I love this because it's so obvious. One of the things that's most impressed me is meeting the young men and young women who serve in the military. By the way, in Israel, everybody has to serve in the military. You don't get a choice. Uh, Here's one of the Israeli soldiers that we met along the way. He is actually uh, standing. We were walking down the Palm Sunday path. There's a Jewish cemetery right behind him. And uh, you can tell that he means business. I mean, that little gun right there is not a pop gun for little plastic targets and bullets. He means business. He is there to protect and defend. That's his job. Every man and woman goes into the military. When you fly into the airport in Tel Aviv, uh, you fly in and you meet these people dressed in these what look like they're just dressed in TSA, their own version of TSA outfits. They're not. Those are young men and women that are serving in the military. They're military trained. They know how to kill you. They know how to interrogate. I've been interrogated, and trust me, there was a 21-year-old girl talking to me, and I thought, if I can get away, honey, I just need to go to the bathroom for just a minute because <laughs> she's scared the living daylights out of me. I thought she was going to take me in the back, and I thought I was never going to come out. So here's what they learn. When they go into the military, part of their training is... They tour every historical site, sites that we look at when we go on trips to Israel. They'll go to Hazor, one of Joshua's great victories. Uh, They'll go to the Valley of Elah. They will go to Masada, and they they will climb Masada. In fact, the rangers have to make an 80-mile run with a full 60-pound backpack on their back, and they've got X amount of hours to do it, they run through the wilderness where it's 100 degrees, and they have to climb the snake path in Masada and get to the top in a certain amount of time to pass their final test as rangers. Not only do they do that, you'll see them by the Sea of Galilee, you'll see them down at the Dead Sea, you'll see them at Caesarea Philippi, and here's what they're doing. You'll see them at the Holocaust Museum. They are there being tested on knowing the history of their country. They have to learn and pass tests on why there's a Holocaust museum, what happened at this site, why this is important. They have to learn military history, they have to learn political history, and they even have to learn biblical history, although most of them are not believers, even Jewish believers. They're basically agnostic But they have to learn it, and here's why. So that when their life is on the line, they know what they're fighting for. They're not just fighting because there's some bad guys on the other side of the Golan Heights. They're fighting because their grandfathers and their uncles fought and bled and died so that they would have a land to live in, and a home, and a shelter, and freedom, and they would be, not be annihilated. They're fighting because they learned the story of six million Jews killed by the Germans because they were an inferior people in the eyes of the Germans, especially Hitler. They are fighting to defend their country, they're fighting to defend their heritage, they're fighting to defend their flag, they're fighting to defend everything that's sacred in life. Wouldn't be a bad thing for us to do in the church to get a good dose of remembering what we're fighting for. We're fighting for our heritage, we're fighting for our faith, we're fighting for our future and for the future freedom of our children. For the faith and the eternal destiny of those that we love and those that we care about. So ladies and gentlemen, as we walk through 2 Timothy, let's make sure we're good soldiers of Jesus Christ.